I want to read the text again, and uh, then we'll jump into our time together after a word of prayer. The Bible says, And the disciples of John and of the Pharisees used to fast, and they come to him and say unto him, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but thy disciples fast not? And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then shall they fast in those days. No man also soweth a piece of new cloth on an old garment, else the new piece that is filled it up taketh away from the old, and the rent is made worse. And no man putteth new wine into old bottles, else the new wine doth burst the bottles, and the wine is spilled, and the bottles will be marred, but new wine must be put into new bottles. God, we pray this morning that we would receive your word with humble hearts. God, we pray that we would be receptive to the things that you seek to show us today. God, we believe your word is alive and that it's active And I pray today that your word would be alive and active in this place. We thank you for the promise that your word does not return void, but it will always accomplish what you set it forth to do. We thank you, God, for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. May we receive what you have for us today with great joy. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. As we look at our text today, we'll quickly understand that in the span of just chapter 2 alone, we see that this is the third time that the religious crowd has criticized Jesus for what he was doing. The first criticism came when Jesus healed and forgave the man who was paralyzed after his friends had lowered him down through the roof. And that is honestly one of my favorite stories in the gospel uh, because it reveals the heart of compassion that this man's friends had for him, but in a greater way, it reveals the heart of compassion that Jesus had towards this man. And certainly we are represented in that story, not as Jesus, but as the man who was lowered through the roof. The second criticism that came into the ministry of Jesus in Mark's gospel was after Jesus had called Levi to follow him. And after Jesus called Levi, we understood through the scriptures that they made their way to Levi's house. And Jesus was basically partying with a group of sinners. They were feasting, they were celebrating, they were enjoying that sweet table fellowship. And when the Pharisees saw this, they could not believe that Jesus would sit and eat with sinners. Today, as we look at verses 18 through 22, we'll see the third time that Jesus is criticized. And this has to do with fasting and really the keeping of traditions. And then next week, as we get into chapter 3, we're going to see a fourth time uh, that, that Jesus is criticized, and then we'll see his teaching on the Sabbath. As we read through the Gospels, we'll be quick to understand that they do not all tell the same stories in the same way. As we seek to study, we must do so with an understanding that the writers were writing for a specific people and to make a specific point. 
Though the order of the events may differ from book to book, we must understand that this is done to emphasize certain things that God desired to emphasize with that main exclamation point continually landing on the person and the work of Christ. And so though they wrote with different styles and though they wrote with different backgrounds and from different perspectives, they were always looking to the same person, Jesus, the Savior of the world. As Mark writes, we see that he was showing how Jesus was establishing his authority. And in this chapter, he does so by shutting down his critics as he continued to carry on and accomplishing the work that his father had sent him to do. Now, who here would say that you like to face criticism? None of us do. Well, let's ask another question. Who here would say that we often like to give criticism? Hands go up all over. And as we think about this idea of criticism, we understand that there are really two types of criticism. There is, first off, constructive criticism. Who's ever been uh, or had a benefit of constructive criticism in your life? Each of us have. It's not often easy to receive, and honestly, if you're the one giving it, it's not often easy to give. It's, it's kind of like walking on glass. You, you know it's going to hurt, but to get to where you need to go, you might just have to do it. And as we think of the criticism that we find in Mark's gospel so far in these three accounts, we understand that this criticism, though the Pharisees may have thought it was constructive, really was not. In fact, it was destructive. They were more concerned about themselves and their traditions and the things that they were trying to push forward than they were about the work of God being accomplished through the person of Jesus Christ. And in part, that was because they didn't understand who Jesus was. And so when they saw this man coming in and doing things in a way that they had never been done before, in their minds, they're giving constructive criticism. But as we read the scriptures, what do we understand? That in reality, it was destructive criticism. That they were seeking to deplatform or destroy or in modern day language, cancel the person of Jesus Christ. But friends, let us be reminded that Jesus will never be canceled. His word will proclaim. He will move forward in doing the work that his father had told him to do. And we have the benefit of reading a complete gospel story. But for those who are around Jesus on this day, I imagine that some of the criticisms that came into the ministry of Christ would have caused them to wonder, is this guy real? Is this guy legitimate? Nevertheless, as the criticism came, we see that Christ simply chose to continue. He continued walking in the way that the Father wanted him to walk. He continued doing the things that the Father told him to do. He continued ministering in a way that the Father told him to minister. And he did this to the point that led him to the cross where he would die for our sins. And so this isn't a point in the message, but maybe it's a point that we need to hear. And it's simply this. Christians, brothers and sisters, let us not get off track when those who have no part in Christ criticize us for what we're doing for Christ. The world is not going to understand or applaud our lives as we live them for the glory of one that they do not know. But that doesn't mean that we give up. In fact, that means that we press on even harder so that they could see the genuine belief 
that lies within us. And so as we continue in chapter 2 of Mark's gospel, we see again that Jesus is establishing his authority in the face of his critics. As we see that Jesus continues to establish his authority, we'll understand from this point on that he lives in that authority. No, no longer does he allow the critics to, to even slow him down, but he just continues doing the work that his father has called him to do. As we think of learning from Jesus this morning, the big idea that I want to hopefully unpack in our time together is this. While the critics were disgruntled over the way Jesus lived, Jesus used the way he lived to prove who he was. The Son of God was revealing the way to God, and we would do well to pay attention to what he has to say. I prayed four things specifically about this message, and I want to share them with you before we get into the brunt of the message. First off, I pray that as we look into this text, that our hearts would be captivated by Jesus. Simply Jesus. Nothing more, nothing less. Not adding to, not taking away, but we would just have our hearts be captivated by the one who died for us. If you came to me and you said, Dan, I paid a bill for you. In my mind, I'm thinking, I know what my bills are, so which bill did you pay? And you came and said, I paid that, that streaming service bill that was $3.99. I paid it for one month. My response to you is probably going to be, thank you very much. And then I probably honestly wouldn't think much more about it after that. But if you came to me and said, Dan, I paid off your mortgage, what type of response would I have? Be blown away, right? I might not even have words to speak. And as we think about our hearts being captivated by Christ, we're not captivated by him because he paid this little insignificant debt, but he paid the debt that we could never pay on our own. So let our minds and hearts be captivated by him today. The second thing I prayed that as we look at this text, is that we would allow the Spirit to do His work in us. Friends, the Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He is God, but His work must be received by us as humans. What do I mean by that? That if we're going to grow closer to God and look more like Christ, then we must be willing participants in the Spirit working in us. And that happens when we receive his word humbly. And I pray that we would do that today. The third thing I prayed is that as we look at this text, that we would let go of the critical spirit that so often resides in us. Who here today would admit that you do struggle with a critical spirit at times? I think we all do. That critical spirit oftentimes hinders us from seeing the things that God is doing. I pray that we would let go of that critical spirit and that we would simply receive what God wants us to receive and then live it out. And then finally, and this is a prayer that I pray often, and it's simply this, that our hearts would be shaped by the teaching of Jesus. That as we look at the words of Christ, as we, as we see the way that Christ ministers, as we look to the way that Christ spoke to his critics, that, that our hearts would be shaped by these very things. 
and that we would remember Jesus only for all of our days. So I want to see three things this morning out of this text that hopefully will be a help to you. The first one is very basic. We're just going to walk through the text. The second one is kind of drawing out the point of the text, what Jesus is saying. And the third one is simply the takeaway. What do we do with the text as it's given to us? And so the first one is simply the text. As we read Mark's gospel, we've already said that he writes in a very fast-paced nature. And I think it would be wise for us to understand that as he groups these, these stories together, these events together, it's probably wise for us to understand that they didn't fall sequentially. That it wasn't Mark saying this happened, then this happened, then this happened. But if you remember what we said earlier, Mark is writing to prove a point. He's writing with an agenda, so to speak. He's writing to emphasize certain things. And so for us to say that this came right on the heels of Jesus eating with the sinners uh, in Levi's house, it might be a wrong assumption to have. Because the stories, uh, though they're connected, we don't see them connected in, in that sense. And so as we continue in Mark 2 and we look at verse 18, we see that there was these two groups who were kind of ticked off at what Jesus was doing. And these two groups wouldn't normally get along. The disciples of John and the Pharisees, I mean, you remember the, the, the sermons that John preached about the Pharisees, what did he call them? Vipers, that, that they, were, they were wicked people. And so now in this setting, we see that the two groups have come together and they're coming to question Jesus. They say, the disciples of John fast and the disciples of the Pharisees fast. But Jesus, your disciples don't fast at all. These followers that you have amassed to yourself, these people that have shown you some level of allegiance, they're not following the traditions that our people have followed for years and years and years. And so the question would cause questions, if that makes sense. As the, the question was posed to Jesus, why aren't your disciples fasting? I'm sure those that heard the question then thought in themselves, yeah, why aren't your disciples fasting? Everybody else is doing it. The religious crowds are following these, these channels that they have walked in for years and years and years. And yet, Jesus, your disciples are not fasting. And so they come with their question, and their question was really an accusation saying that Jesus wasn't who he claimed to be because his followers weren't doing what they thought they should do. And we see that all of this flows from the critical spirit that often comes with a person who is very, very, very religious. Why aren't you doing things the way that we do them? Why aren't you practicing worship in the way that we practice worship? Why aren't you living out the commands as I think they need to be lived out? Well, in verse 19, Jesus gives them an illustration. And we'll get into more of each of these as we go through. But in verse 19, Jesus gives an illustration that would have been familiar he uses the idea of a wedding to capture their attention. And he says, can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. And so a wedding celebration in Bible times was much different than wedding celebrations today. 
when two couple or two people would determine to get married, they would set the date and not just that date, but how long that was going to last. And in these times, a wedding could last upwards of seven days. Now, I have two daughters and I'm glad that wedding celebrations do not last seven days any longer, right? I'm hoping my girls will elope. I'll give you some money. Just go for it and enjoy life. Maybe there's mixed emotions about that in this room right now. I don't know. But weddings are expensive. And as Jesus uses this illustration, he does so because he is a master teacher and he knows what's going to get their attention. As Jesus often compared John, he, he, in some settings, compared John as what? The best man. And so as Jesus furthers that illustration in this setting, he's reminding the readers or the hearers that a, a wedding was not a time of mourning, and a wedding was not a time for fasting, but a wedding was a time to celebrate. Now, I, I love going to weddings. As I said, I don't want to pay for a wedding, but I love going to weddings because the spirit in a wedding is one of overflowing with joy. I love doing weddings. I, see, I, I cry basically every time I see a bride walk down the aisle. That's probably no surprise to you. But I do. I love weddings. It's a time of celebration. And Jesus is telling them that as the groom, as Jesus was on the scene... This was not a time for fasting, but this was a time for celebrating. He continues on in that illustration in verse number 20 and tells them, but there is a day coming when it will be appropriate. Now is not appropriate. It's inappropriate to fast in this time. But there is a time coming when Jesus would be taken away. And this is not simply speaking of him going to heaven, but it has reference to what Isaiah talks about in Isaiah 53, 8, about Jesus being taken from prison and from judgment, being taken away from them. And in that moment, that's when it would be appropriate for them to fast again. And as we think about the fasting that was going on then, we know that John talked of, or, or probably talked of fasting in way of repentance. The Pharisees fasted two times a week, plus on other special days that God had, had set up, and, and they were doing this religiously. And as they questioned Jesus about what was going on here, Jesus says, it's, it's okay for my disciples not to fast because something better has come on the scene. Now, as we think about the religious crowd, they couldn't imagine anything better coming on the scene than really the law that they had been given. But do we understand today that Jesus was better than the law? In all points, Jesus is better than the law. In verse 21, Jesus goes on to give another illustration. And this would, again, have been familiar to them, but maybe not so much to us. We live in this part of the world, in America at least, in a throwaway society. I can remember being in Cambodia and there was, there was actual villages that were built not on but in the city dumps. They would burrow down into the dumps and that's where they would live. And what would they do there? They would find every and any scrap of material that they could use or sell to get money. That is foreign to us. If something is broken in our lives, what do we do? Throw it away and click two-day shipping from Amazon and it's at our door before we know it. I desire to live one day in a place where it's same-day shipping for Amazon. 
I don't know if that's ever coming to Vermont, but like when, when you're on vacation and, and they say you can get this same day, it's like, how is that even possible? Are they bringing drones in? What, what's going on here? But we live in a throwaway society. So this, this illustration that Jesus uses could be lost on us unless you lived in my childhood. I understood this back then. When something got a hole in it, what would happen? My mom would get out her patches and she would either iron them on if she was in a hurry or she would actually sew a patch on my clothes. Now, why would she do that? Because the rest of the garment was okay. It just had a hole and needed to be repaired. Well, Jesus is using an illustration here and speaking to people who understood this process. And he says, if you have a garment with a hole in it, you don't take a cloth patch that is brand new and not shrunken and put it on that garment. Why? Because the first time you wash and dry it, that new fabric is going to shrink and it's going to cause the the blemish or the, the, the marred area of the fabric to become worse and the hole's going to become even greater than it was before. In verse 22, Jesus gives another illustration that likely is lost on us but would have been familiar to them. He says you don't pour new wine into old wineskins. Now, the process of, of making wine includes the process of fermentation. And when those grapes would have been squeezed and that juice would have been poured out and they wanted to preserve that wine, they would place it into these wine skins, which were really goat skins that had been sewn together where they could seal it so the fermentation process could take place. And as that wine fermented in an, a new wine skin, as the gases were released, that bag would expand and then contract. Well, if you have a wine skin that's old and you put new wine into an old wine skin, that has already been stretched and it's already started to dry out, when that fermentation process began to take place, what would happen? It would break. And now, not only do you have a ruined wine skin that you couldn't even use for water, but now all the wine that you were trying to make has flowed to the ground. And this is the text that's before us today. And you may be sitting in your seat today saying, what is Jesus talking about? He's talking about a wedding, and he's talking about sowing, and he's talking about making wine. What is Jesus saying? Well, if we look to the text a little deeper, the first thing we see is simply the text. The second thing we see is the point. And what we need to understand is that in everything that Jesus said, there was always a point. Everything that Jesus said, everything that he taught, every word that came from his mouth, there was always a point that he was seeking to get across. And the same is true here. And so these, these unbelievers brought their questions to discredit Christ, but his words would prove to silence them because the, the teaching that he gave was so powerful. Their critical spirit was evident in the way that they continually verbally attacked Christ, but his calm and collected state, along with his incredibly wise teaching, proved to silence them time and time again. But what is the point of this teaching? I often have heard these broken up into individual texts and, and taken in different ways. But they're not meant to be broken up because they all serve the same purpose. They're all pointing to the same thing. They're all leading us to the same idea. And that's what we want to get to this morning. Now before we get too far into this, we need to understand that the basic premise that Jesus is giving here is that he is better. You want to know more about this? Go read the book of Hebrews. 
That's going to reveal to you much of what Jesus is saying here in different terms and and with a different teaching method. But basically what Jesus is saying is that I am better. I'm better than all the traditions that you have kept. I'm better than all the religious teachings that have told you you can work your way to God. I'm better than every attempt, every failed attempt by every human who had ever lived. I am better. And he's not saying this with arrogance. He's saying this with 100% accuracy, theologically, sacrificially, and in in the idea of the atonement. He's better in every way. And so Jesus' words, as he's getting across this idea that he is better, is not like a, a bunch of middle school boys on a playground playing basketball. I'm better than you, or my dad's better than you, your dad. But what Jesus is saying is, I am better, not with arrogance, but with the heart of truth, leading people to understand the reason that he came and leaving glimpses of hope for those who would have ears to hear and eyes to see, that they could see there's something greater going on here. I think it's important for us to note that Jesus does not do away with the idea of fasting. In fact, we've already seen in Mark's gospel that Jesus fasted for 40 days. And so he's not saying that this idea of fasting is worthless or that we should get rid of it altogether, but he is saying that our fasting should be pointed in one direction. He is saying that our fasting should be done with a heart that has been changed by the message that Jesus would preach. So Jesus isn't saying to do away with the law, but rather he's trying to get the attention of those who were seeking to keep the law so that he could prove to them that he is the very one who would fulfill the law. And when they understood that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law, do you understand what they would in essence be believing? The gospel message of Jesus Christ. That he was better. That he was was of greater value. That he did what we could not do so that we could have what we could have never earned on our own. And so Jesus uses this, this, these illustrations to drive the point home. In, in his illustration about fasting, Christ tells those who are listening that in this moment it's not appropriate for his followers, followers to fast because this would have been a time of rejoicing. John understood this rejoicing as he saw Jesus coming and in a celebratory tone of voice said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. He didn't look to Jesus and say, We look to enough for another. He says, We look to Jesus and he is the only one that we look to. So this wasn't a time to be sad. This wasn't a time to to mourn what was going to happen. This was a time to rejoice that the long-awaited Messiah was now on the scene. You think for a moment when you have waited for somebody to, to come visit you or you have waited to go visit somebody else, what is often associated with those visits? You sit down and what do you do together? You eat. You celebrate. Because sharing a meal is a special thing. That table fellowship that Jesus exhibited for us earlier on in Mark 2 was was the type of thing that Jesus was talking about now, that he is to be celebrated. There would come a time when fasting would be appropriate, but now is not that time. And as we think about fasting in our day and age, typically we only think of fasting for its health benefits. But friend, do we understand that even today there are spiritual benefits to fasting? 
We don't fast in order to earn our way to God or to even get something from God. We fast with a heart that says, God, I want to get to where you are. I want you to change me to be like your son, Jesus Christ. And so in our day, we could say it's appropriate again to fast. But guess what? There will be another day when we are with the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world and we will not fast. But what will we do? We will table fellowship with him in rejoicing. Why? Because our salvation has been made sight. And so while the question came about fasting, Jesus is saying, my disciples, my followers are in actuality doing what they should be doing. They're eating and they're drinking and they're rejoicing and they're celebrating and they're partying and they're sharing in table fellowship. And this is what they should be doing for the the groom is here. But when he's taken away, then, and only then, will it be appropriate to fast again. As I said, the, the reference here to being taken away, and you can mark this down, would be referring to passages like Isaiah 53.8, where it talks about Jesus being taken away and taken from prison into judgment. It's not talking about him just going to another place on this earth, but it's talking about the violent manner in which he would die. But we know that through his death, He brought life. And though Jesus was saying in that moment it was not appropriate to fast, I want us to understand again that in this moment it might be appropriate to fast, but that fast is pointing us to that blessed hope that we have where one day we will be with him forever. So that's the first illustration. So if you have questions about fasting, friends, it's okay to fast. Fast, as long as you fast with the right heart and for the right purposes. The second illustration, and we often wonder, what is the point of this? Sowing, I didn't take home ec. I don't know uh, what I'm I'm doing. I I tried to sow once and I bled more than I uh, fixed two pieces of fabric together. What is Jesus talking about? Sowing new fabric on old cloth. Well, the illustration that Jesus is giving is simply this. That the old way and the new way are not compatible. They're not. The old way and the new way are not compatible. Who was Jesus speaking to? He was speaking to the Pharisees, the disciples of the Pharisees, those who loved the law at times seemingly more than they loved the God who gave the law. They were more interested in adding to the law to protect themselves, to make sure they were living in a right way than they were about receiving the law with a heart of goodness and grace from the good and gracious God that it came from. And so Jesus, as he's giving this illustration about putting two pieces of fabric together, he's saying, hey, if you try to mix the law with this new Christianity that has come on the scene, you're not going to have any good results. In fact, you're going to be left confused. You're you're going to be left defeated. You're going to be left uh, in a position that you don't know how to recover from. Judaism, as as a religion had a strict reliance upon rules and laws and regulations and feasts and certain days. And as Christ talked to this religious crowd, he was telling them that these two things cannot go together in relying on them for salvation. Now, I have said often, and I will say again, is there any benefit in understanding the feasts of the past and the special days and all of those things that were done through the Old Testament leading into the New Testament? I will say every time, 100% yes. Why? Because they were pointing to Christ. 
I often think we do a disservice by not teaching our children the significance of these things because they were of such great value. This is what God gave them for a time and for a season to draw them into this place of a longing and a hope for the Messiah who would come. So understand that Jesus is not bashing the idea of the law. He's not even bashing the idea of them keeping the feasts. He's bashing, or not even bashing, he's dismantling this idea of their reliance upon those things to give them salvation. Paul speaks of this in Galatians chapter 5. We looked at this on Wednesday night in verses 1 through 9. And Paul was writing to a group of people who in some ways had been deceived. They had started out well, Paul says. But who has fooled you? His question is posed. And so what is his encouragement to them? In verse 1, he says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. So who is it that makes all men who come to Christ in faith free? Who is it? It's Christ. Christ is the one who makes us free. And then he goes on and says, And be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Christ has made you free. The law is, in essence, of none effect in your lives anymore. He goes on to say in verse 2, Behold, I, Paul, say unto you, that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. Now, from a, from a medical standpoint today, we're thinking, so circumcision doesn't... Why are we still doing it? Paul's not talking from a medical standpoint here. Talking from a spiritual standpoint. In the Old Testament, leading into the New Testament... They were circumcised to show that they were a specific people from a specific place. And it was a sign and a seal that was given to the males in those households that they were indeed the people of God. But don't we understand that that it's no longer the circumcision of the flesh, but it's the circumcision of the heart that determines whether or not we are the people of God? He says in verse 3, For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to the whole law. That's not good news if you're familiar with the law. If you're relying on the law to save you and you have that mark of circumcision as an outward appearance of that reliance upon the law, then what does Paul say? Not only do you got to be circumcised, but you got to keep everything else. You're a debtor to the whole thing. And then he says in verse 4, Christ has become of no effect to you whosoever of you are justified by the law, you're fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. Ye did run well. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. And so as Jesus is giving this illustration of sowing, and as this illustration is pointing to this reality that the old covenant and the new covenant, though they complement each other, and though we should see the new covenant in light of the old covenant, and though we should see the old covenant in light of the new covenant, we can't rely upon them both to bring salvation into our lives. Jesus says that, and as we have just seen, Paul says that. 
And Paul encourages them to stand in the liberty and to not be entangled with the yoke of bondage in thinking that the law would bring to them this salvation. He, he tells them that their circumcision profits nothing if it's not done in, in, in faith or not a, a fruit of their faith that they have in Christ. He tells them that if they rely on circumcision, that they're indebted to the whole law and that they have fallen from grace. Now, what does that mean, fallen from grace? Is Paul saying that they would lose their salvation? No, it's not talking about that eternal sense of falling from grace. It's talking about living outside of the grace that God has given you in the new covenant. That your reliance upon the law in reality is going to make your life miserable because the only thing that you're ever going to think about is how to keep the law. And while you're thinking about that, the only concern you're going to have is how you messed up without even knowing it. And so Paul's teaching here really bolsters the teaching of Christ that the two will not go together. You can't put new fabric on old cloth you're only going to make matters worse. And isn't that the truth that we read about in many of the letters in the New Testament? That so many people were concerned and confused on keeping the law versus not keeping the law, remembering the days versus not remembering the days. And all the while, the message of each of the New Testament writers is really the point that Jesus is making here. Just look to Him. Just look to Christ. In verse 22, we see the final illustration, and we'll hustle through this one. But the final illustration that he gives in this section, again, is one that probably most of us are not familiar with. But as they would prepare new wine or, or crush those grapes, and they would gather up that juice, they would store it in these wine skins, and that fermentation process would take place. And if they put it in old skins, then the skins would burst. If they put it in new skins then the skins would, would grow, they would expand, and they would hold that wine perfectly. Now, I read probably seven or eight different commentaries on what is this illustration? What is it pointing to? And, and many of them landed on this idea of it being the spirit that's placed in us, that the spirit can't go in somebody who is, is not saved, Right? But the Spirit has to go into somebody's life who has been transformed. And how are we transformed? Through receiving the Spirit by faith in Christ. But as I read all those commentaries and as I studied probably the most on this section, I think what Jesus, again, is, is trying to get across is this idea that the new and the old don't go together. That you can't receive the Spirit apart from Christ. And if you have Christ, you are made new and you indeed receive the Spirit. And as He does His work in you, He will lead you in the way that He wants you to go. Uh, under the law, they followed the law with the purpose of living to please God. But under the new covenant, we follow the one who guides us from the inside out. We no longer look to an external source of rules to make us walk in the right way. But we follow the leading of the Spirit who dwells within us. And as we follow the leading of the Spirit, we can be sure 100% that our lives will please God. So we don't walk after the flesh, but we walk after the Spirit. One of the problems with, with Phariseeism or Judaism as a whole is that living the law often led to a very prideful person. You think of the Pharisees as a whole. 
Their lives were littered with pride. Think of the, the prayer that we looked at a couple of weeks ago in Luke 18, where the Pharisee stood up and prayed thus to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like that guy, that I don't do those things, that I have all my life put together. And then the sinner got up, actually the sinner got down and prayed. And what does he pray? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And as Luke wraps up that story in his gospel, what does he say? One went down to his house justified and the other didn't. Why? Because one had been changed and one had not. And so the, the fasting was pointing to this reality that Christ was better. The, the new cloth on the old garment was pointing to this reality that the old and the new cannot be mixed in reliance upon and relying upon them for salvation, but we must look to Christ. And in verse 22, this third illustration that, that Jesus gives is revealing the spirit that dwells within us and that we must be made new in order for the spirit to come within us. And when he's in us, he then empowers us to live a life that we could never live on our own. We often hear of the battle in the New Testament between the flesh and the spirit. And what do our minds honestly always go to? Doing righteous things versus doing unrighteous things. Do you know what oftentimes the battle between the flesh and the spirit is in a religious standpoint? What is the driving force behind the things you're doing? Are you doing them through the power of the spirit? Or are you doing with the heart of a Pharisee through the power of yourself? Anytime we rely on ourselves, we must understand that we are making the sacrifice of Christ of none effect in our lives. Not meaning that we're losing that salvation, but it's meaning that we're not relying upon the gift of grace that God has given us to walk in a way that he has called us to walk. Listen to a sermon this week and quoted Spurgeon. Spurgeon was talking about this idea of reliance upon God for righteousness. And he says this, if there is but one stitch or only one stitch that we think we have to put into our celestial robe of righteousness, then we have missed the point of the gospel altogether. I can't put any stitches into my robe of righteousness. My robe of righteousness is from the finished work of Christ on the cross. And so why, why, why would I look to the things of this world, to a, a, a law to give me righteousness when I already have all the righteousness I need in the person of Jesus Christ. Again, I'm not saying ignore the law. The law is good. The law is good. The law is like guardrails that keeps us on the straight and narrow. We use this illustration Wednesday night. You don't ride your car up against the, the guardrails, do you? No. Your car would be destroyed. And if we live our life always bouncing from the law to the law to the law, instead of walking in the power of the Spirit, we are going to become so burdened down in our Christian faith that we get to the point of burnout. And so the text is confusing, but the point is very clear. And that's our takeaway for this morning. What does it mean for us? The takeaway. You may be going home saying, man, I've been sewing wrong my whole life. I've been putting these, 
new fabric on these old garments. And I'm thankful Dan preached that message today because now I know how to fix a pair of ripped jeans. Maybe you're thinking about the fermentation process and your mind has gone off in a hundred different directions. You're like, well, now I know I can't use my old wineskins. And if you have wineskins, I'm like, what are you doing with wineskins to begin with? Like, are you really sewing up your dead goat skins and storing them in your base? What's going on here? You got more problems than, than worrying about the wineskins, right? So what's the takeaway? The takeaway is not necessarily about when to fast and when not to fast. And the takeaway certainly is not about a home ec lesson on sowing or the fermentation process of wine. But the takeaway is this. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. The Pharisees came and they said, your disciples aren't fasting. John's disciples are fasting. We don't even get along typically, but we're united in this. Your disciples aren't fasting. Therefore, you cannot be the son of God. And what does Jesus say? My disciples are doing what they're supposed to be doing. Why? Because the groom is present. What was he saying? Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. And then he gives the illustration. The illustration of the old and new fabric, how they can't be paired together. And so what do we do in this instance? Do we continue to keep the law? No, we we look to Jesus. Why? Because he is the fulfillment of the law in our behalf so that we can have hope that we could never have without him. Friend, if you are here today thinking that you are going to keep all the laws of the Old Testament or even simply the Ten Commandments and earn your way to God, at the end of your life, you will be sadly mistaken. Why? Because you can't do it. You can't. It's not humanly possible. Why? Because we have a sinful flesh. So what do we do? We're left hopeless. No, no. We're left hope-filled as we look to the one who kept the law in our place. We look to Jesus. And then as we think about that new wine, we understand that the only way for that new wine to be poured in us And for us not to explode, it's by looking to Jesus. Look to Jesus, to him only. Look to the one who died in our place. Look to the one who loved us beyond what we could ever even imagine. Look to the one who had compassion on us when we did not even know we needed compassion. Look to the one who before the foundation of the world was considered that lamb that was slain. And look to the one who one day we will table fellowship with in eternity. Look to Jesus. Because Jesus is the only one worth looking to. And if you look to anything else, your life may look good on the outside. But internally, you will be a mess. You see, the Pharisees loved this idea of earned acceptance with God. It was a pride-based and a pride-fueled system that led to failure. They loved the traditions of men. And though we also at times love the traditions of men, we must understand that if the traditions of men are taking us away from the person of Christ, then we abandon the traditions of men and we cleave to Christ wholly. And so I implore us again in this takeaway 
to simply look to Him. Coming up on St. Patrick's Day, and a couple of weeks ago, somebody reminded me of this. I believe I shared it last year as well, but it's something that St. Patrick said so eloquently as he thought about the person of Christ. Christ with me. Christ before me. Christ behind me. Christ in me. Christ beneath me. Christ above me. Christ on my right. Christ on my left. Christ when I lie down. Christ when I sit down. Christ when I arise. Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me. Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me. Christ in every eye that sees me. Christ in every ear that hears me. Friend, if you missed everything else in the message and you're just now coming awake again, can I encourage you this morning, look to Christ. He's the only one, the only one who can satisfy the debt that you owe. He's the only one who can give you hope in this life and hope in the life to come. He's the only one who sees you where you're at and doesn't say, that's where you deserve to stay and I'm going to leave you there. But he comes down to where we were. He takes upon himself the sins that we committed so that we can take upon ourselves his robe of righteousness. He's the one who is the bread of life and the door of hope and the well of living water. He's the Savior, and it's to Him alone that we look. You see, the religious people missed Christ because they were so consumed with their own righteousness. And do you know as we talk to people in our world today, maybe even some of you that are sitting in this room right now, you think, well, Christ is just an add-on for those people that need a little extra help. Friend, Christ is no add-on. He's either all or nothing. We either rest in Him alone or we're not resting in Him at all. And so if you're here today and you think one of two things, first, that you're going to make it to heaven through your own works, flat out, you're wrong. You won't make it to heaven through your own works. Or maybe you think you're pretty good, but you just need a little extra. Friends, you don't need just a little extra. You need all of Christ. And He needs all of you. So will you look to Him today? Will you look to Him by faith, believing that He is who He claimed to be? That He did what He said He would do? And that He is coming again to receive those who are His bride? Remember, He is the bridegroom. And he is the one that we will one day be reunited with for all of eternity. Will you look to him? Or maybe you're here today and you're a Christian. And you say, I've looked to Christ for my salvation. I know that he is my savior. But maybe you're looking to yourself for sanctification. Can I encourage you that true sanctification flows 
from a continual look to the person of Jesus Christ. If we're saved by Christ, wouldn't it be true that we're also sanctified by Christ? That He who has begun a good work in you will perform it in the end? That He will complete that process of sanctification in us until we see Him face to face? So will you look to Christ today? Will you follow His example? Will you live in the grace that He has provided? The big idea that we began with was this. While the critics were disgruntled over the way that Jesus lived, Jesus used the way that He lived to prove who He was. The Son of God was revealing the way to God, and we would do well to pay attention to what He has to say. So what do we learn from Jesus, we learn to look to Jesus, for He alone is our source of hope, both now and for all of eternity. God, we thank you for this morning that we can be in your house. We thank you for your word, God, that you have given to us. And though at times it seems confusing as we talk about illustrations that maybe we aren't familiar with, but God, the truth is when we study your word, we understand that really it's quite simple. God, for those in the room today who have never trusted Christ, I pray this morning that your spirit would work in their hearts and draw them to this place where they understand they have a desperate need. But there's also a, a glorious Savior who stood in their place to give them life eternal. God, help them today to see what their eyes are seeing and to hear what their ears have been hearing. Help them today to believe the truth that Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world. And God, for those of us today who are saved, I pray that, that we would do what we did in the very beginning. We started well by looking to Christ. May we finish well as we look to Christ. May we keep our eyes on the one who died in our place, the one who gave his life so that we could be forgiven. Oh God, if we're following anything else, may we abandon that today at the foot of the cross and start running anew with Christ as the one who guides us. We thank you for your love. Pray that you'd be with us as we reflect on what we've heard this morning and as we respond. God, may our response be one that brings glory to your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In just a minute, we're going to sing a song. Before we sing, if you're here today and you have never trusted Christ, as we sing, I would encourage you to meet me at the back of the church. And we would love to go through the Word of God and show you how you can be saved. Maybe you've been looking your whole life, thinking, if I just do this, that'll be enough. Friend, your works will only be enough to get you eternal separation from God. But Christ's work... Christ's work is fully sufficient to forgive every debt you owe. Would you come to Christ today? Meet me in the back if you have questions. Believers, would we just examine our hearts this morning and ask ourselves the simple question, who are we looking to? Dave, would you come and lead us in a song? Would you stand as we sing this morning? <laughs>